Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Dr. Brian Leva is an Afro-Latinx physician activist who studies the intersections of medicine, racism, and social inequality. He has a background in community organizing, social justice art, and public health research. Dr. Leva sees all his work as part of a larger effort to decolonize and diversify medicine and achieve equity in healthcare. His research, rooted in social justice frameworks and community engagement, has been published in journals like NEJM, JAMA Internal Medicine, Journal of Healthcare for Poor and Underserved, Social Science and Medicine, and Implementation Science. He has been featured in several news outlets, including NBC Nightly News. He is bold, honest, and not afraid to stay present in his truth, and we are so happy he agreed to come on the show. This good doctor believes that sustained activism is rooted in something deeper than outrage, and we are eager to find out what that is. Welcome, Dr. Brian Leva. You know, it's so funny because there are people who I just vibe on right, right away, and I just have to know who they are. And they're never big-time celebrities. They're always people who are celebrities in my eyes because they're doing the work that I admire and I appreciate and that I've been doing for years. But now it's a whole next level with social media. And so I'm, I'm very honored to have you here today. I say all of that just to say that. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be here and I appreciate the work you're doing. And, you know, it's just great. Social media has a way of connecting folks that are like-minded. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for social media and I'm very grateful for, for you giving me the opportunity to come and just chat with you and kick it with you. So, Thank you. Thank you. Because I know I can be pushy, but this time my pushiness worked out. So I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. The language you use to identify yourself is so important because we all are finding a way to articulate our identities. And so I want you to break it down because not everybody knows what you mean when you say you identify as American by nationality, Colombian by ethnicity, Afro-Latino by culture, Black by race, and Pan-African by politics. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was born in Colombia, but I came here when I was a kid. And so I grew up here in the United States. So my nationality, the country where, where, where I have my national identity is here. I'm American, right? But my ethnicity, which is the, my ethnic culture is Colombian, right? So my entire family is Colombian. So our traditions, our food is influenced a lot by that. I say I'm Afro-Latino by culture because like I'm Latino, but I'm mixed. So half my family's black and half my family's white or, or you know, white native mix, admixture. And so that describes kind of my, my culture and a lot of, which is very distinct from Latino culture and Latino right. culture as we know it here in the United States. Afro-Latino culture is very distinct. Black people in Latin America have a very unique way of talking, a unique way of communicating, a unique way of having fun, you, you know, and they also have unique struggles as well. And so to me, it's not just a genetic admixture. It's also a cultural admixture. 
because these two communities navigate the world differently. And I, and I embody that. And then, you know, I think I say I'm black by race because it's very important to me to, to really connect with that side of my, of my race. Right. I think when I, I don't navigate the world as a white man. And so, and, and, you know, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of times I'm not, when I'm in the United States, I'm not always racialized as a black person. Right. And, but that is, again, that does describe who I am. And when you think about, you know, no one ever says Barack Obama, you are white, right? Even though his half his family is white, right? Right. But for some reason, when it comes to Latinos, you oftentimes, you oftentimes do get that, right? And so for me, being able to say that I'm black and being proud of that is important. And then lastly, I'm Pan-African by politic because I believe in the liberation of all black people. And whether it's in the United States whether it's in the Caribbean, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in Africa, we all have very similar struggles. You know, when it comes to Colombia, I'll give you an example. You know, you have about one fourth of the population is black. It's the fourth largest black population, right? And even then, three fourths of the Colombian population, uh, three fourths of the poor population in Colombia is black, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see that disparity where you see that people of color are, are facing the worst disparities in terms of income, in terms of wealth, in terms of health. And so when I say I'm Pan-African, that, that speaks to a politic that I believe that I believe in the liberation and freedom of all black people. And I advocate and I push for that. And that is central to my identity, essential to the way I move and the way I see problems. And I center that in my work. You see me over here cheesing like that. You know, I'm just grinning because I just am vibing with everything you're saying. And I love how you broke that down. I think it is important for you to be able to identify the way in which you choose to, because oh, we all should have the right, number one. But the second thing is that, you know, people of color are the global majority. And until we start acting like that, we're not going to find the economic power that we honestly have, even in poverty. You know, if we decide where our dollars go. It makes a greater impact on the construct of things. And so the fact that you know, I embrace the Afro-Latino culture and I also want the Spanish-speaking community to, to realize we're in this together. I mean, you may have immigrated here, but they will target you the way they target me. So we need to figure out how to become the global majority united across cultures. The Asian community has had that wake up call, you know, and so we have to realize there's power in numbers and we have the numbers, which is why white supremacy is so afraid right now. I mean, that's the Absolutely. reality. Absolutely. The truth is also within Latino culture in and of itself, there has to be a real reckoning with race as well. Yes. And so when I, when I state that, I'm also trying to push against that. I want people to think about it because so much of our history has taught us that there is no race in Latin America. When the lived experience of people of color, of black people in Latin America is that there is. Right. And so we're, that was done intentionally throughout countries in Latin America, from Brazil to Colombia. This idea that we are all just, you know, we're all Brazilian and we're all Colombian and there, there's no black and white. It was done intentionally as a way to push us aside from our blackness and as a way to unify our country, but without addressing the very real implications of of being black, for example, right? So I think part of why I am constantly mentioning race is because I want people to realize that all Colombians aren't treated the same and don't navigate the world the same, right? We, we all don't look like J-Lo or like Ricky Martin or right. like Maluma, right? Like we all don't navigate the world that way. And it's not just how we look, it's also the wealth that we inherit and the, and the social conditions that we're born into. 
right? Um, I grew up in Cartagena, which is one of the largest enslaved ports for enslaved people in South America, in addition to Salvador, Brazil. It's a black city where, you know, over 80% of the population is black. All our murals are of black people. I mean, we are the epicenter of Afro-conscious in Latin America, along with Salvador, Brazil. And we take pride in that, right? But most, most people don't know that. But when I say that, I say that because within the city that I'm from, even though it's a highly touristed city, the majority of the population is in poverty. The majority of the population is black. But when you go to the city, you will not experience that, right? And so I, I just think it's important that we constantly, even amongst Latinos, that they're constantly positioning themselves within larger society and recognizing the privileges and uh, that they carry and using that to help other people along. So, you know, you, you touched on something I, I want to get your perspective on. You know, I, I don't I don't think people of color have privilege. That's not my language. My language is that mm -hmm. some have more access than others. But privilege in America, especially, is totally aligned with skin color. So I just want to I, I like to draw that distinction because then people will be like, oh, we all have privilege. No, we don't all. And, and, you know, I'm wondering what role immigration plays in this, right? Because the whole thing about the whole mentality about immigration is proximity to whiteness, you know, and, and it's deeply ingrained and unconscious in the immigrant struggle to get here in order to get closer to what is identified as successful, which in our country is aligned with whiteness. I'm wondering what part that plays in this process of embracing the different colors within the Latino culture. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think immigration is complex and I think that the reasons why people immigrate is very different, dependent yeah. on region, dependent on country, right? You Absolutely. have political refugees like folks from Cuba and Venezuela, and you have economic refugees like folks from Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, et cetera. And so I think, I, I do think that the reasons why people come here are very different. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say it is always for the sake of wanting to, to align themselves with whiteness. I think that unfortunately, whiteness is aligned with success in America and whiteness is aligned with economic prosperity and whiteness is aligned with financial freedom and whiteness is aligned with a generational wealth and homes and the American dream. The, that is the construct of whiteness is all of that. And so in chasing some of those other things, I think you, Sometimes to achieve that, you get sucked into this construct of whiteness that they sell you. Um, and you see, and you see it being embraced by some groups more than others, right? Yeah. And, and you see it in how some groups vote, right? And That's you see it. So I, I think it's certainly very complex. I love how you phrased that much better than I did. Thank you so much, because I do not want to act as if it's about coming to get proximity to whiteness. Not at all. There's a struggle. People don't wake up one day and just say, I want to go to America and align with whiteness. So I really appreciate you reframing that in a way that makes more sense and is much more accurate a perspective of people's reality. Thank you. And you say that your views are shaped by your experiences and identities, part of which is based in your immigration experience to the U.S., which you've spoken of a little bit, but also growing up poor in a two-parent household. Will you talk about that a little bit? I think that one of the first signs that you are not white, right, is that is oftentimes how you're born. I read somewhere, oh, the first time I found out I was black is when I was born, when I was born, I was, is that I was born poor. And that was, it, it changes your perspective, right? The question was like, for, when was the first time you thought about your race? And they said, well, the first time I, I, you know, it was when I was born and it was because I was born poor. And 
I think, I think that changes how you view the world. You know, I, I was born poor as well. I had nothing. I was born in this city in one of the, in a poor town in, in Cartagena and came to the United States and I moved to Central Falls, which is also a, is a poor city in the state of Rhode Island. If you know Viola Davis, I'm from the same city she's from. Being part of that, growing up with nothing, it kind of makes you really approach politics and approach the world differently. And it positions you in the world in a very unique way, I think. And the way you relate to people is different. And the way you relate to things are different and to materials is different. So I think, you know, I I, I was one of those kids, you know, I worked at McDonald's for two years right before college. I worked with my parents. I, my dad was a janitor, custodian, and I like would go with him to clean the YMCA's or the, the, he worked at the mall as well. And I would go with him to do that. So, so yeah, so I think, think that that was all very formative for me and it shaped how I view the world. And it didn't end there, right? You think that you go to college and all of a sudden you are, are going to be thrusted into wealth. And that's what I thought. At least I was very naive, but you go to college and I still came out in the same material conditions that I was when I went in, except that I was in debt. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so I think that, you know, that experience moving to the United States and as an immigrant, I think changes how you also even view other people who come to the United States. Right. Right. Because if I came to the United States and I was able to become a doctor, I think that other people should have the opportunity to do so, too. Being in Colombia with my sister, who was in Venezuela. Right. She lived there for a while. I saw the, the stuff that they were going through there. And so it gives you compassion for other folks, too. So it really does change your entire perspective. Thankfully, you know, I, I did come with a two-parent household. And I think that also changes people's perspectives, right? And that, you know, I, I grew up with having two people around that had my back, right? And it wasn't just one person trying to do it all by themselves, like many folks in the United States do. So all of that, I think, shapes shapes how I engage with the world. And I think the reason why I'm very explicit about that is because I think we all need to do that. I think, especially in, in, in academia or in medicine where, or in, you know, in scientific fields where people think that we're all coming from an eight, like unbiased place and that is all about facts and every, all science is, you know, pure. And right. we bring our perspectives and our experiences to our science. We bring our perspectives and our experience to the patient encounter. We bring our perspectives and our experiences to politics, right? Politicians do this all the time and you see it. And so to pretend that that's not true. Well, that doesn't happen feels disingenuous to me. And so for me, it's very, I just want you to know, like everything I say, that's the perspective I come from. And that might help you either be more receptive to it or at least understand why I feel and believe the way I do. You know, you just brought up two things for me. One is that I, I co-sign on that completely. When I start to teach a class at the graduate level, the first thing I say is I teach through my blackness and don't think your white professors don't do the same thing. You know, because I do think it's important to put that out there as a consciousness, you know, so I, I, I appreciate that very much. The other thing is, what do you think happens to people who lose that part of themselves, right? So you talk about how it informs who you are and how you approach everything. What do you think about that code switching and you forget to code switch back and pull some mm. people up? What do you think of that? You know, I think code switching is so interesting. I think it, it is originated as a form of survival, right? As a means of survival. I mean, you do, you know, you do what you need to be able to, to get by in, in a hostile environment, right? And that's how you deal is you, you try to fit in, you try to 
be less noticed. But I think in the midst of that, you do dim down part of who you are and what makes you yes. unique and original. And, and so I think that there are folks that I unfortunately do feel that they do get lost in that. But I think that does a disservice to them. And I think it does a disservice to the rest of us. So if I'm ever coach switching, best believe that if I ever get to the point where I don't fear, right? Because I think a lot of times we coach switch because of fear. If we act how we are most truest, authentic selves, if we bring that to the workplace, we might get reprimanded. We might experience repercussions. But I would hope that if I ever get to the point where I can, when I am the leader of my department or of my unit, where I can make it so that people don't have to coach switch. Mm -hmm. Right. Where people don't feel that they have to sacrifice parts of who they are in order to survive and thrive and do well in the workplace. I, I feel like when you when you when you forget that you end up perpetuating the cycle of violence, institutional oppression. I mean, I think the need to coast switch exists because of the need to try to survive in a, in a violent environment. And so I think when you, when, you, when you forget that, you end up perpetuating that same environment that you hated once. I love that. I love that. You know, Dr. William Cross explained it so well. You know, I used him in my thesis in grad school, why it happened, why it continues to happen, and what happens when you don't remember who you are and where you come from. So I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't have that concern about you <laughs> as you move along in your career. <laughs> no, man. I, I mean... <laughs> And you have to be because the world is going to want to change you. The world is going to want to make you what they want you to be. And I think remembering like who you are and why you do, who, what community you belong to and why you do what you do and who you're doing it for, I really think keeps you grounded so that when things happen, you're not shaken and you stand firm in who you are. So, you know, how can you not be shaken with the daily racial trauma? But when you can look to the side, like when I look at activists like you, you know, all of a sudden I feel a little bit more grounded, you know, because I'm like, I'm not alone. You know, I've been doing this a lot of years, but now I can see others in the same line of fire. We're not alone. And there is something empowering about that. Absolutely. And that's something that I've also realized, too, the more I've been unapologetically myself and you find your allies, right? You find your you know, your co-conspirators, you find folks in the trenches. Um, and it's actually can be used as a defense mechanism, right? Like you are your authentic self so that the people who are, don't mess with you, they, they literally weed themselves out. Yes. Right. Yeah. Interestingly yeah. enough, like you think that it's going to expose you to harm, but you find that those people just get out your way and the Absolutely. people, you know, it, and sometimes it does, but I, I do feel like you, you end up finding a community of people. Um, mm -hmm who are willing to shake the system and are willing to, to say what needs to be said, even if it goes against the status quo. And I think that's where we are. I think that's where our generation is. I think at this point in time with everything that happened, that's been happening, right? None of this is new. Nothing I see here is unique. Everything has been done before and said before, right? It's like the same thing. I mean, you could hear it in Tupac's lyrics. You could, I mean, it, yeah. you could literally like, Everything that I talk about is the same thing that other people have talked about before. But I think that right now, if we're at a point where more of us are, are willing to be unapologetic about it and, and vocal about it. And, you know, I think some good things are coming out of it, but we still got a lot of work to do. You know, it, it gives me hope, like I said before, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm 
30 years into this game and was often standing by myself with my big mouth, challenging thing and things and systems. And so now it's so cool to see younger people doing it the way that you're doing it. I just, yeah, I just value it so much. You know, I'm at a loss for words for it, to be perfectly honest with you. I have much gratitude for it. And we have gratitude, you know, for folks who have been doing it longer than us, right? Like you, and it's always black women too. That's the thing. You guys have been paving the way like for forever, right? And so, you know, a lot of my, you know, scholastic intellectual heroes are all black women, right? And, and we wouldn't be able to have the tools like these. That's why we got to protect it. When we talk, when I talk, when I, when I study, when I write about critical race, I mean, we have to protect these into, they're trying to destroy our heroes. And these are, these people gave us the tools to be able to name things, to be able to fight for things. And we have to protect them and their work and carry it along. But not, like I said, I think everything we must build on was already been done. And so, so, you know, I'm always grateful when I see folks like you who've been doing it for a while too, because it helps me know that people have been doing it before me and they're still riding with me. Right. And I hope to be riding with someone like that too, an up and coming you know, physician or, or scholar, right? I hope to one day be that, be that for someone else too. Right on. I love that. Clearly, we have so much to talk about. We're going to do this in two parts. So join us again for the second half of this show. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.